so he comes to us today pretty much fresh from, in sort of perhaps geologic terms, from the historic climate talks that took place last month in Paris. Um, and he's here tonight with a former student from Wesleyan, Evan Weber, who's now the executive director of a, a nonprofit in DC called uh, US Climate Plan. And it's an organization that Michael helped found, uh, I guess, while you were still at, at Wesleyan. It's, uh, you have a website, <laughs> but I hope you'll have an opportunity <coughs> to also talk with, with Evan this evening to learn about some of the interesting work he's doing at the state level on climate change and carbon taxes. Um, so Michael's bio is, is uh, in all of your packets. Uh, we have a little bit about him on our website. He's got uh, tracks all over the internet. So if you want to pursue that further, you can. I don't want to go into too much detail here because we have a short amount of time. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to say um, that he's something of a polymath uh, and embraces the all-too-rare fusion of scholar-activist with a, a career ranging from physics to finance to filmmaking and climate justice and youth movement organizing. Uh, Michael sits on the board of the, uh, the national board of the Sierra Club and is a permanent member of the Club of Rome, which is a group of world-renowned, long-range thinkers um, bringing interdisciplinary and holistic perspectives uh, to, um, to address the future of humanity and the planet. So his interdisciplinary and holistic work, that these perspectives are things uh, that I think are really one of the reasons I asked him to come here. I asked him to give us a perspective on the climate negotiations in Paris and leading up to it, what it means to us going forward, uh, focusing particularly on some of the perspectives from social science uh, about adaptation, about migration, uh, citizenship, spirituality, um, political and racial violence, and so forth. And um, one of the side talks in Paris, for example, that Michael tweeted about while he was there, questioned and explored the widespread assumption and discourses about climate change driving mass migration and creating climate refugees. Um, after his talk, uh, and we'll be about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, we'll just convene, reconvene <coughs> next door here in the Batsa room where we'll, uh, we'll uh, have a screening uh, of a film that Michael was a uh, co-producer on, um, a film called Climate Deadline, Paris 2015. So please welcome Michael Dorsey. Well, th thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, and thank all of you for, for taking out some time on an otherwise normally uh, normal temperature January evening as opposed to that thing that we got yesterday uh, of what was it? It was 65 down in uh, the District of Columbia. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the El Nino, uh, the extreme El Nino phenomena, but it certainly is exacerbated uh, by the unfolding climate crisis that we are facing. Uh, and so I, I gather uh, if folks came out uh, on an evening like this to hear uh, me uh, hopefully not prattle on too long about climate change, that you probably have some minimal insights into the issues, some insights into the 
the issues maybe uh, in Maryland or in the, you know, the Mid-Atlantic uh, or even nationally or globally. How many of you, just a show of hands, just to give me a sense of the room, how many of you, you know, saw a news broadcast, read an article about what happened at the 21st Conference of the Parties, the climate negotiations in Paris? Just a show of the hands. Okay. okay, good, that's good, that's good. Who did not? Okay, which is fine, which is fine. This is why you're here, right? You know, which is, that's totally fine. And sometimes the news is worth ignoring, right? You know, because it's more kind of a, a Dada-esque assemblage of nonsense uh, than real news. Uh, so it's fine if you ignore it. Um, so essentially, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, maybe two or three minutes. And, and for those that want to know the, the real details, we can certainly talk about that, you know, after the film. And, and feel free to be in touch. Uh, you know, Tom has my information, and, and feel free to share that out with folks. Uh, and, and even if you don't share that, you can find me. I'm sort of readily findable. Um, essentially, the Conference of the Parties, or COP21, uh, it was the 21st Conference of the Parties. The parties, it's not a, people always see my badge sometimes, occasionally I have a parties badge. They say, oh, you're having a, you're at the party, right? Well, the party is a, is a sort of a United Nations multilateral shorthand for countries, right? So uh, the conference is really the space where countries come together and have been coming together over the last two decades, and actually slightly more than that. Uh, they put together the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, back in 1992 when several of us uh, were there uh, at a parallel conference called the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. They also not only uh, put together the Framework Convention, they inaugurated the Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, they also inaugurated the Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, and those processes, the processes that produce uh, the two agreements, uh, the two f conventions, one on climate, one on biodiversity, um, and uh, produce a set of principles, which probably some of you are familiar with, Agenda 21. Who, who's, who hasn't heard of it? Let's do like that. Okay, a few people. You all are environmental studies. You, you, this is a testament to the quality of the teaching here. Yeah. Um, if you haven't heard of environmental studies, or the, if you haven't heard of Agenda 21, then that's a, that's a commentary on, on, the, on the quality of this program. So most of you have, so that's good. So Agenda 21, uh, a big tome of unbinding um, principles, uh, was launched at the same time as they inaugurated and opened for signature the Biodiversity Treaty and the Climate Change Treaty. Uh, fast forward um, 21 years later, uh, actually more like 23, because each of those conventions, biodiversity, climate, they had about a two-year run-up uh, to get structured and to be opened for signature. Um, fast forward, we're now 21 years down the road and we're at Paris. Um, and without sort of going through all of the sort of Byzantine details, I'll say that the Paris Agreement was essentially an effort to fix a broken multilateral process, uh, the process that essentially broke down uh, post-Kyoto, the Kyoto Protocol, which was an amendment to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, came out in 1997, and basically uh, <coughs> obligated the planet's largest polluters, uh, essentially the industrialized countries of the world, uh, bound those countries only to uh, make certain reductions in the emissions of what we call greenhouse gases, uh, of which not only carbon dioxide is one, but there's a sort of a short list, includes methane, uh, even water is actually on that list, a couple others as well. 
um, but bound the biggest polluters to reduce their emissions to do basically one big thing, which is enshrined in the text of the of negotiation or the, of the treaty, of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. A anybody know what that is? What, what the what the? It's a a three-letter uh, moniker, DAI. Does anyone know? So these are for the real climate wonks, right? Uh, so to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, right? That is the purpose in writing in the text of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, right? To do that one thing, to prevent the dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. So to basically to stop human beings uh, and really industries, uh, the large polluters, from wrecking the climate system. And why would they want to do that? Because the folks at the time, uh, back, way back in the 20th century, uh, they believed that if you did that, you would jeopardize ecosystems, uh, you'd jeopardize economic <coughs> systems, social systems, ultimately political systems. You would possibly destroy the planet as we know it, right? Um, so they decided to come together and put together this United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Fast forward to 97, very few people thought that rational leaders, business folk, would think that science couldn't be used to drive political processes, right? No one really imagined that kind of waywardness in the late 20th century, right? Because we have to think, where does that idea come from, right? It goes back to the sort of the foundings of, you know, liberal society, right? It goes back to the foundings of almost all institutions, certainly in the West and arguably worldwide, that, you know, rational people get together, they use science, not metaphysics, right? They don't believe in alchemy anymore, right? They believe in chemistry, which comes after alchemy. Um, you know, physics comes after metaphysics. So the thinking was by the late 20th century that rational people would use science in a rational way. Um, and of course, that did not happen, right? That didn't happen. Uh, and we're now learning, it's very interesting, a colleague, and I don't want to go on too long about this, a colleague uh, began some of the discovery, the late Luke Cole at the uh, San Francisco-based Center for Race, Poverty, and Environment Law. Um, he was representing a community on the, the north shores of Alaska in Kivalina. Uh, and his law firm, the Center for Race, Poverty, and Environment Law in San Francisco. And in the discovery process, they unearthed a great number of memos and documents between some of the oil companies where they were being advised, uh, basically saying, hey, they're being advised by PR firms and so forth. And the PR firms were telling them, we're going to create a PR machine to get the world to think this is a hoax. But you guys have to remember that it's not a hoax. These are the memos that go back and forth. Um, and so just now, one side of it I was involved in in Paris, I'll say, <coughs> was a group of these lawyers that are now thinking about bringing a class action against some of these firms that were involved. So the, the ancient history of the climate denialists is that those that sort of pumped a lot of money into this over the past two decades, uh, they were being advised by folks saying, hey, we're going to create a PR fog for the planet to believe in. You guys got to remember that this is a real issue, uh, and you've got to watch your bottom lines because there'll be huge implications on your bottom lines. So that's a sidebar to two decades from the late 90s to the present, where essentially 
the commitments that countries made in Kyoto, uh, the narrow set of commitments for a small number of countries, uh, they didn't bear out. And there's a whole long list of reasons other than climate denialists and so forth, the politics, the lack of political ambition, lack of political will, and so forth. But it's those things that got us to the negotiations in Paris um, and got us to a point where we basically uh, wanted the world, and when I, when I use the, the word we, I'm speaking sort of generically and broadly about the member states, those parties, right? The member states of the United Nations. There's a lot of other non-governmental actors involved in this process, but when I, when I talk about this, I really want to focus just on those countries, um, 196 or so of them. Um, they sort of collectively decided that enough wasn't being done in a robust enough manner. So they put a burden on the negotiations in Paris. And one of the things to understand about these negotiations, they pop up every year, 21 conferences of the parties. Uh, last year, a bunch of us were in Peru, the year before uh, in, in Doha, the year after that, the year before that, uh, in Poland and so forth. But the key thing to think about is that these yearly or year-end events that you oftentimes read about in the paper, they actually are based on a whole long chain of, of meetings that happen essentially that are going on constantly throughout the year. And the year-end marks a sort of a, a stock-taking, really. So Paris was an effort at a stock-taking. Uh, it was an effort to attempt to <coughs> inject energy into a negotiations process that's been going on for two, two decades that hasn't been um, you know, bearing fruit. By most estimations, it didn't really work. The, the commitments, when you look at the commitments of the countries, they basically put us on a course where most scientists admit uh, we don't need to be. Um, the, the sort of rough running average of if you sum up all the countries' commitments and, and do sort of a, a summation of what that would mean for global warming and, and the warming of the atmosphere, probably produces somewhere around two and a half or three degrees of warming, which for most extensive purposes is catastrophic. That actually two and a half, three degrees of warming, potentially more, would actually produce the antithesis of the framework convention. It would actually produce dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, right? And thus destroy ecosystems, social systems, economic systems, ultimately political systems. So the interesting thing, though, about the negotiations in Paris was that, and, and I'll, I'll give it Usually I give these uh, outcomes at these yearly meetings a sort of a solid D or an F. Uh, I'll give the Paris Agreement, I've been giving it you know, on <coughs> shows and so forth and, and discussions, I'll give it a solid C. Um, a solid C for a few reasons that I'll just talk about quickly. Um, one, even though it, it failed to produce um, trajectories that avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, it actually admits that in the text. The, the agreement says, we know this agreement isn't robust enough, right? We know, and since we now know this at the outset, we need to do much more and we have to up our ambition going forward. Very, very rare. Uh, I've, I've asked this to a number of colleagues, how many agreements actually explicitly in the text of the agreement uh, admit that the agreement is probably a failure? I can't think of one. Uh, and so this is important. It sounds sort of uh, counterintuitive, but it's very important because uh, it essentially flags to not just the parties, those that signed on and 
not really literally signed on, they sort of voluntarily committed themselves. But it, it flags not just to them, but it flags to all of you that, hey, those guys, those countries, those folks, they're mainly guys, unfortunately, or fortunately, perhaps for some, um, they didn't do enough. So it sends a signal to citizens, sends a signal to the market, sends a signal to those that are watching the process that more has to be done. So that's actually somewhat of a good thing. That, that gets you not, a, not an A minus, not a B plus, but gets you a solid C, doesn't get you failure. They also made some new commitments. They did a really interesting thing. Typically, treaties like to create ceilings. Um, we will find $100 billion. Um, this agreement created a floor, uh, which is very rare. Uh, it happened. It does happen in treaties, actually. That does happen, but it's not so common. So in the Paris Accord, they created a floor, and actually the floor is $100 billion. Uh, we will raise no less than $100 billion towards um, avoiding and compensating and, and helping out countries in need uh, that are experiencing the unfolding climate crisis. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important for a lot of reasons. One, in this country, some people, and hopefully not all of you, or none of you really, like to say, well, we're going to try to avoid climate change. Well, this is a problem that is upon us. Right? It is an unfolding crisis. Right? Uh, and around the world, in some countries, it is actually not just a crisis, it's a, I'll, I'll call it more like a, a catastrophic, cataclysmic uh, event. Uh, some countries that have experienced some of the large uh, cyclonic uh, events, uh, typhoon events, uh, flooding events, uh, erratic weather events, uh, in the extreme, places like the Philippines, many of the small islands um, across the Pacific, uh, even the Caribbean, uh, they've lost not single-digit percentages of GDP, but double-digit percentages of GDP. Uh, Philippines with uh, Typhoon Haiyan just a couple years ago, and they got, they got sort of several typhoons back-to-back. -back. Some people put the losses at around 11% of GDP. Uh, if you can wrap that in your mind, and sometimes the numbers are that you can't wrap them in your mind because you really can't even fathom them, but a double-digit loss to GDP for most countries knocks them back from uh, middle income to permanently low income. And if they're lucky, it may take a generation to uh, simply get back on track. And usually they're not lucky, right? The world doesn't really focus on luck. So that, that floor that is in the agreement in Paris is actually quite helpful. It's, it's again another signal that, hey, there wasn't enough in the agreement, um, and we need to do more, but we'll do no less than this. Uh, and, and it's important because $100 billion sounds like a lot of money, uh, and it was interesting recently, um, the, uh, some people, you might have seen this, the, the, the president, our president, maybe not everybody, maybe, any non-Americans here? So. Not at one. Okay, a few. Okay, good. So the American president, yeah, um, he announced a, a few months before Paris that uh, he was committing um, essentially a billion dollars uh, towards uh, you know the, the the negotiations and so forth. Uh, and some people were emailing me, oh, "Don't you think this is a good thing?" I said, "Well, depends on your vantage. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he's about 99 billion short." 
uh, and uh, a few months uh, late uh, because the Chinese uh, committed through two funds about a year ago, um, essentially $100 billion uh, towards this. So to put these numbers in perspective, uh, it's nice that the agreement set a, a floor of $100 billion, but one country alone has put that on the table. Uh, we're 1% um, uh, towards that. And most people estimate that the number that is truly needed is on the low end 10 times as much uh, and possibly 100 times as much if we really will commit resources to make communities and municipalities and countries whole after catastrophic mm -hmm. weather events, uh, as well as um, protect them from future catastrophic weather events that we can we have an increasing ability to forecast, right? And to put that number in perspective, just last year, uh, roughly $100 billion went out the door from insurers, right? And depending on whose math you, you pay attention to, and, it's, and, and the precise number for what, I, for what I'm hearing is actually more like 92 billion, so almost 100, we'll round up just for the sake of the, uh, the conversation. About 95% of that was weather-related. 95% of that weather-related. So, you know, do you put the numbers in perspective? 100 billion, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not even in the ballpark, right? Uh, that money flew out of the door in those that are insured, right? And of course, we, we can already, you know, we already know that being insured means that you're probably moderately well off, right? To be poor and destitute means you're not insured by definition. To be poor and destitute means you don't have, you know, a credit score, let alone a credit card, right? You know, so a, a big chunk, we can just, we don't even need to dig into the numbers, we can just assume that a big chunk of that $100 billion that went out the door to protect people from primarily weather events, 95% of that money was for weather-related insurance uh, claims, went to people that were pretty well off. Uh, and we've got great empirical data on that uh, in this region, right? The bulk of the post-Sandy money, insurance money, uh, went to people that were moderately or, or fairly well off, right? Um, and a lot, of, a lot of insurance fraud with that as well, and we, we know that now. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people that were yeah, fairly well off, um, you know, because they took out expensive flood insurance so they could, they knew the waves were going to come, and they paid those premiums, high-end high premiums, right? Um, but again, another reason why I give the agreement a C because it sets a, a floor uh, as opposed to a ceiling. Uh, sending again a signal to all of you in the room about what you need to work on, what you need to be conscious of, uh, what you need to think about in terms of protecting yourself, right? If you, if you know the governments, uh, the parties, are gonna be off by an order of magnitude or as much as two or three, then you better get on with something more aggressive, right? Um, so those, I think, are a couple of things. May I take five more minutes? I know we're running over before we go to the movie. Sure. Okay, good. So that's the Paris sort of conversation, the Paris negotiations in a nutshell. Many, many more details and nuances we can talk about. We can talk about um, the, the problems in negotiations between the rich countries and the poor countries. Uh, we can have that in conversation. One of the things that I want to talk about by way of conclusion is now that Paris is over, which is really important, 
Uh, what do we need to work on? I've, I've flagged for you a few things that you guys should be thinking about vis-a-vis -vis some of the shortcomings in, in the, the agreement. Um, but I think the big thing that we need to be thinking about and working on is something that um, Evan and I are certainly concerned about uh, at U.S. Climate Plan, um, and that's this whole issue around energy justice, right? So let's pretend that we're in a world where the agreement in Paris, instead of setting a floor of 100 billion, set the floor at 1 trillion, which is what some people say is needed. Well, great. Well, so what? Let's say that all the countries actually made commitments that avoided where the trajectories were enough to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Well, so what? What would we, be, what would we do then to get there? Well, a lot of that doing is related to building out the renewable energy economy, right? Shifting from the foolishness of fossil fuels, or what some folks call fossil fools, right? Over into the renewable economy, uh, and which is primarily going to be wind and solar, but also some hydroelectric, uh, some geothermal. Um, and the, the reality is that now we live in a world where the price of doing that transition is very, very low uh, and falling, right? We're all in at a dollar a watt on solar, and that's dropping. Uh, it'll probably be within a decade, maybe down to 50 cents or a quarter. Uh, and that number may seem sort of Greek to some of you, but to, to put it in context, um, you know, at, at those prices, uh, the average homeowner uh, in this country can basically do solar installations on their home and see the returns. At a at dollar a watt, you see returns in 15 to 20 years if you use third parties. You can see those returns faster if you do it yourself. You can see those returns in 10 to, 10 to 15 years. At, at 50 cents a watt, it's even faster. And at a quarter, it's not quite instant, but it's almost a few years where you see returns, particularly if you live in a place where you get you know, money back from your utility and so forth. The challenge, however, is that the cost of doing that is tied up to those that have resources, right? You get to use that third-party solar installer, the, suns, the solar cities, the sunjevities. You get those guys to come out to your house if you own a house. Right? You get them to do that because you've got good credit. You've got that high FICO score. And when you have that, their cost of money is less. So they can provide you with those solar panels. But I told you earlier that to be poor, to be on the margins of society, it's not that you don't have a credit card. You don't have a credit score. So the challenge, I think, going forward for us to think about, and we can talk about this in, in the Q&A after, is how we deliver sustainable, clean energy for all, really. Right? right now, the current configuration doesn't do that. And we know that that must be done. Right? And even in a place like Maryland, right, you've got caps, two megawatt cap. If you produce more than two megawatts, BG&E, now purchased by Exelon, they don't give you one red cent. Right? That's actually, I'll argue, a form of energy apartheid for farmers, for churches that own property that could produce more than two megawatts. Right? That's blocking them out from free energy, the sun. That's creating, that's BG&E, Exelon, creating false scarcity. 
cutting you off from accessing free energy. I offer to you that that, that's the horizon where we have to pay attention to. And it's not as sexy as nice, cute climate marches in New York, right? It's as boring as sitting through a public utilities commission meeting and paying attention to BG&E when they make these rate changes and understanding what it means to have a cap that doesn't pay you above a two megawatt um, you know, production, right? And understanding what it means if you have to apply to the federal energy, uh, the FERC, to get permits to produce more than two megawatts in the first place. So right now, we have lots of bad policies in place that are being maintained by utilities, monopoly utilities, right? That actually will block the delivery of just sustainable energy for all. And without going into the nuances, because there's many, many nuances, because they're particular in each state, particular municipalities. You know, I can tell you the story about why Exelon is looking to buy Pepco down in DC, because they've made all these bad nuclear investments. That's a conversation we don't have time to get into. But I'll just offer to you that the battle going forward to help us avoid the unfolding climate crisis is really caught up in energy politics and is really rooted and sunk in to a battle for energy justice that is includes everyone, right? How we do that, how we make policies to do that, how we enable citizens to access renewable energy, that's actually the frontier. And not just homeowners, right? But the poorest of the poor amongst us, right? And there's good data, and I'll offer this by way of conclusion. There's great data that those that are poor, when they get access to renewable energy, solar panels, and so forth, that they actually pay back slightly better than folks that are wealthy. And there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. But there's good data coming in that, that that's the case. So that makes a strong argument that we actually can provide clean, green energy for everyone, but we've got to do a lot to change the policies that don't make that possible. Um, and with that, I'll end it. Um, and hopefully you think about that. Uh, and and it, it tees up a little bit of the movie. The, the movie, and I, I'm not really a producer. I'm sort of advising these guys out in California about this thing. Um, and the movie's a little bit, I'll say, more about the politics of the climate negotiations, which I'll offer to you is maybe a distraction. Because the real focus has got to be on building out clean, green energy for all in a just, equitable manner that includes those on the margins, as well as those that aren't on the margins. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.